Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 327th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this is a special episode for a number of reasons, not least because it's the first one that we have posted since February 27th, 53 days or almost two months ago. That, of course, is a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic that has devastated our industry, our country, and indeed the entire world since we last posted an episode. And so this one is dedicated to all of those who have been lost, who have lost loved ones, who are currently fighting for their lives, and especially to all the people on the front lines helping to combat this horrific plague and providing other essential services. Because there is no widespread testing yet, and a vaccine for COVID-19 has not yet been found, this episode marks another first for this podcast. It's our first episode over the course of our nearly five years of existence, in which my guest and I were not in the same room when we talked. I always felt that face-to-face conversations were a key part of what made this podcast special, but that, of course, was no longer an option, until our wonderful longtime producer, Matt Whitehurst, figured out a way to record high-quality audio through a video conferencing program that allowed my guest and I to at least simulate a face-to-face conversation. And that is the approach that we will continue to take each week through the close of Emmy nominations voting on July 1st. Our podcast future beyond that, like the future of much of entertainment journalism, is uncertain, which is why I want to ask you at the top of this episode, rather than at the bottom as usual, to please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on your podcast app and to let others know how you feel about this podcast on your social media platforms, making sure to tag The Hollywood Reporter. We would really appreciate it. And now down to business. When I began planning our first episode back, one dream guest immediately came to mind. Mark Cuban. Not only is he very much a part of the Emmy race as one of the hosts, or should I say sharks, of ABC's massively popular structured reality show Shark Tank, but he is also a massively successful businessman, a billionaire several times over, who has sizable financial interests in several of the areas that have been hardest hit by the pandemic. Among them, small businesses, some 150 of which he has backed through Shark Tank, sports, as the majority owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks since 2000, and Entertainment, as the co-owner with Todd Wagner of 2929 Entertainment, divisions of which include Magnolia Pictures and Access TV. The 61-year-old was kind enough to agree to join me for an hour from his home office in Dallas, where he is hunkered down with his wife and kids. And over the course of our conversation, we discussed his rise as an entrepreneur before the dot-com bubble burst, his approach to business in the years since he became a very wealthy man, his fellow reality show host Donald Trump and their complicated relationship, which most recently led to Cuban being offered a position on now President Trump's task force to reopen the economy, the enduring appeal of Shark Tank, plus much more. And so with great thanks to Mark Cuban, with a plea to our listeners to stay home, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's My pleasure. Uh, podcast. I, I guess before we get into your personal story, I want to just ask how, how you and your family are handling this unusual time. I mean, as well as can be expected, I have three teenagers, effectively, 10-year-old son and a 13- and 16-year-old daughter. And my son and I are great because when it's warm outside, we go out, shoot baskets, run around. But my 13- and 16-year-old daughters... I mean, <laughs> it's an adventure, you know, they've got their own little lives. They're trying to live in their rooms. And, you know, other than some occasional forced family fun, we, we see them at dinner and that's about it. <laughs> well, let's go back to the beginning of, of your amazing story. I guess uh, really the beginning, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, Squirrel Hill, and then moved to Birdland and Scott Township, then Mount Lebanon. Um, my dad did upholstery on cars, so if you got a rip in your car seat, you took it to Regency Products where he worked. And my mom did odd jobs, whatever, around raising us. Neither of them went to college. Just, you know, hardworking, you know, middle class, normal people, blue collar people. So if the legend is true, it sounds like your entrepreneurial side first emerged out of a desire to get sneakers. Is that a yeah. correct story? A true yeah, story? it is true. Um, <laughs> I've been a basketball junkie my entire life. And, you know, I always wanted the coolest pair of kicks like everybody else. And so one day my ba- my dad and his buddies had a poker game at our house. 
and I went in there mostly to get donuts. But, um, you know, I was like, Dad, I need a new pair of basketball shoes. And, you know, typical for my dad, he's like, you know what? Those shoes look like they're working pretty damn well. If you want your own pair of shoes when you have a job, you can buy whatever you want. I'm like, Dad, I'm 12. How am I going to buy, you know, a pair of basketball shoes? And um, one of his buddies, probably been drinking too much, was at the table. He goes, you know what? I can get you a job. I've got these boxes of um, garbage bags. Why don't you sell these garbage bags in the neighborhood? I'm like, cool. If I can get my, you know, my beta bullets or whatever, you know, then I'm down for that. And, and so um, that's what I did. I took his garbage bags. I'll never forget them. They, they cost me three bucks a box. I sold them for six bucks. And I would just go door to door and be like, Bam, bam, bam. Hi, my name is Mark. Do you use garbage bags? I mean, you know, for $6, I've got a whole box that I'll bring you and you can use them and you just call me when you're done with them and I'll bring you more. So not only was I selling at 12, I probably had the world's first and only garbage bag route ever. But I, I, well, I learned. So, I learned a lot. I guess, does that does that tell us, though, something that people are, you know, sort of do you have to be born with that entrepreneurial uh, no. spirit or do you it no, could be it's not a necessity, right? I wanted those basketball yeah. shoes. Yes. <laughs> and you know, I'm 12 years old. I don't know any better, you know, and right. I'm talking to my neighbors and actually it taught me more about sales probably than anything I've ever done that all, you know, the, the hardest part is just taking that first step and, you yeah. know, and it's particularly when you're young, no one's going to say no, you know? And so, you know, I just went with it. And then from there, you know, that gave me confidence in a lot of different things. So when you eventually go off to college, I, I know Indiana University is where you ended up. Upon graduating from there, can you just share what your degree was in and also what you imagined at that time your future would look like? Oh, my goodness. Um, my degree was in business, but I did it all back ass halfwards. So I dropped out of high school and went to the University of Pittsburgh for a year because my high school wouldn't let me take a business class. They, it was only for seniors. And so... You know, I was like, forget this. I'm going to college. Went to the University of Pittsburgh and took some classes there. Did well, right? But they didn't have a business school. It was just local and all I could afford. And so I saw a list of the top 10 business schools and Indiana was the cheapest. So went to school there, sight unseen, had never laid eyes on campus, didn't know anything really about it. And when I got there, I was like, you know what? I'm going to see how smart I really am. I'm going to take the hard classes. And so this is back in the day when you had like, you had to stand in line for registration for classes and give them a card and they would register you. So I, I'm, I see this class there by the business school for graduate level statistics. And it was K501, I think it was. Anyways, and so I'm like, what the hell? If I could take a graduate level statistics class, I can do anything, right? So I, I, I wasn't in the MBA class and this was an MBA. And so I handed them my card and they were like, Okay, and they registered me. I went to class. I got an A in it. I mean, they used all sports analogies for the, for the class, but that's not even the better part, right? So, you know, long story short, I ended up taking um, a year and a half of my MBA during my freshman and sophomore year of college until they realized I wasn't supposed to be in the MBA program. And one day on campus, the the um, head of the the dean of the business school came up to me and started poking me in the chest. I don't know how you did this, but you're out of it. You're not an MBA student. You're not, a, you know, get back in. And they stuck me in this honors program. <laughs> so in any event, yeah, it was crazy. And so by the time I was a sophomore, a junior rather, I had a year and a half of my MBA done until they kicked me out of there. And then that got me through Indiana University. And then from there, I came down to Dallas. Now, it sounds like even at Indiana, there was a self-starting side where, were you doing some side hustles? Oh man, and my whole life was a side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> because like, my dad sent, basically sent me 20 bucks a month and I had to figure out the rest of it. So everything was a, a side hustle. From chain letters that paid for, I think it was my junior year. It was great. To, um, we, I was a party promoter with my friends where... Um, we would, I remember one time in Bloomington, Indiana, the Bloomington National Guard Armory, where me, my buddies, we rented out the armory, got like 50 kegs of beer, and then also, and a DJ, and then also rented these buses, because, I mean, we knew it was all going to be underage kids, right? And we didn't want people drinking and driving, 
And so we sent the buses the night of the party to all the different dorms to just pick up people, collect the, tw- the 10 bucks or whatever it was back then, and then just killed it. So that's how I paid for my <laughs> sophomore year of college. I still have copies of the invitations we sent out. It was amazing. And then um, my junior year, I did the um, chain letter, also won a scholarship that I'd never applied for. Somehow someone stuck my name and just just by the skin of my chinny chin chin, that's how I paid for junior year plus the chain letter. And then my senior year, um, a guy named Evan Williams and I, a guy I played rugby with, I took my student loan money for that year and he put up money and we opened up a bar on campus. And so it was a bar that we used to do party promotions in. So we knew the bar and we changed it over. So it was just like something that we would like. And it was called Motley's Pub. And um, we just had all of our buddies coming in and we would throw parties. And, you know, I wasn't even 21 until after we opened and I'll obviously just let my friends in. And then we got busted, of course. And that was the end of my bartending and, and, um, and nightclub ownership career. But it, it, was, it, was, it was a blast. So the fact you said you've been a side hustler your, your whole life, what, what was driving that? Is there a desire to rise above the, the middle class? Or is there somebody that was a, a model of very wealthy person who you admired, who you wanted to emulate? Or, or what would you... I mean, it was, it was either that or go home. (laughs) I had no choice, you know, (laughs) it it was out of necessity. It wasn't like, okay, well, you know, daddy's going to pay for this or daddy's got that. No, not at all, man. It was just like, you, you know, you have to figure it out. I mean, and that was the way it was my entire life. My dad was always very clear. You know, you know, I said he worked doing upholstery. He used to bring me down to where he worked and they would pay me five bucks to spend the day sweeping the floor. And it's not because be, I did it for the money. He wanted me down there to, so that I would never, ever have to do what he called manual labor, right? He's like, the one thing I, lo- I want in life for my boys is not to do what I do. And so he wanted me to see, you know, this is, this is not the way he wanted me to go. And, you know, and, and he didn't have education or anything like that, but he was smart in his own way. But he, so he always pushed me like, look, I, I can't do it for you, Mark. You've got to figure it out. And that's the way it always was. It wasn't like I had mentors or anything. It was just like, figure it out for yourself. You can do this. And that's what I always did. And, you know, that led to all the side hustles from selling stamps in high school to you name it, to the chain letters, to whatever it took. Because it it was either, you know, win or go home. And so I certainly didn't want to go home. I believe that there's a very specific date I should ask you about because first you graduate from college in 1981, but then I believe it's July 4th, 82, you are out of Indiana and on your way to Dallas. Why Dallas and what was awaiting you there? <laughs> so a bunch <laughs> of my buddies from Indiana had gone to Dallas. And my buddy Greg, I was talking to him on the phone. He goes, Cube, let me just tell you, the weather's great, the economy's great, and the women are beautiful. I'm like, wait, just stop right there. I'm coming <laughs> right now. And um, that's exactly what I did. I got my little 1977 Fiat X19 with a hole in the floorboard that needed oil every 60 miles, bought a bunch of cans of oil, filled up the tank and drove down from Bloomington to Dallas. And, you know, went, uh, there's a place in the, in the Dallas still called the village, which I think at the time was like the largest, the world's or the country's largest apartment complex. It was just <laughs> single city. It was crazy. And so we had a place in the Hill, um, one of the complexes there, six guys. I was the sixth guy in a three bedroom apartment they gave me a little spot on the floor. They, they all had funky jobs, too. And so it was like I was just reducing the rent. You know, the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, there also, though, have to be moments where you look at your life and you say something that must have seemed bad at the time ended up being a wonderful thing. And I think that it would seem to me from the outside that that first job that you had in Dallas has to be an example of that because people should know you know, when they're watching Shark Tank or something and they see this this guy who, uh, you know, is not always easy on people who are who are screwing up. You know, Mark Cuban was once fired. Oh, yeah. I mean, more than once. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when I got down there, my first job was working as a bartender slash bar back at a bar called Alon's on Greenville Avenue. That wasn't my goal. I literally in my closet right here, I have I have in this book a list of all the different industries that I wanted to try. And I was just, you know, trying to get any job that I could. And one of them was in the computer business. And even though I wasn't a computer guy, I went and applied. And it was great. It was a company called Your Business Software. 
and I saw it in the classifieds ads. And then I went to a headhunter because that was the ad for a headhunter. And then I went and I interviewed and they're like, well, you don't know anything about computers. I'm like, well, I know how to read a manual. And they're like, okay, if you can try to figure it out, but there's only one thing and here's what'll get you the job. You came through an agency. We can only give you the job if you don't tell the agency because we can't afford to pay the fee. The fee. I'm like, done. <laughs> so I got that job. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy. Obviously, I have a job and uh, I'm making 1500 bucks a month, which was amazing for me. And but I still can't afford to get out of the, the Hill Hotel, the dump that I lived in with my friends. And so um, I, I'm going along and I finally get a chance for my first big commission. I'm about nine months in. And I go to my boss and one of my responsibilities were to sweep the floor, wipe down the windows and open up the store because it was a, a software retail store, your business software on Oaklawn Avenue. And so I um, called up my called up somebody to cover for me, called up the boss and said, I'm going to go pick up this check, $15,000 check. I'm thinking he's going to be fired up. And he's like, no, I need you in the store. So I made the executive decision to go get the check thinking, you know, you hand somebody a $15,000 check, fires me on the spot. Ugh. I'm like, Ugh. okay. And actually, best thing ever happened to me, obviously. And so um, I'm, out, I'm back in the Hill Hotel, got nothing. My friends and I, I, I gotten paid, so I had like 50 bucks left after all, everything. And so my friends and I went to Galveston <laughs> and just like blew it out. But I, I wrote up part of that in between hangovers, wrote up a, a business plan and a one pager for a company I called Micro Solutions because I wanted to help people with their microcomputers. And so out of being yeah. fired, I started this company and found, a co found my first customer who um, loaned me 500 bucks. And I basically told him, Look, if I can't make this work, I'll walk your dog, I'll wash your car, whatever it took to make it up to you. But fortunately, I was able to make it work. And even though I went the next seven, eight years without a vacation, um, I turned it into a $30 million in sales company and sold it to CompuServe, which was part of H&R Block and did really well. Now, that deal, the first big deal of your life, $6 million you walked away with, suddenly at, I believe, 32, you're a, a pretty wealthy guy. How did that feel? What did you do? Did you think, you know, was there almost an existential crisis about, you know, this is a whole new ballgame? No, absolutely not. Because I, I literally, I walked away with, so six million, a million we gave to employees. Another guy, um, I brought somebody in as a partner, Martin Woodall, who was really good and, and helped a lot. He got two million and I kept two million before taxes. And so that was still a lot of money, right? And so my first thing was to get trashed with my buddies. <laughs> and we were at this old time steakhouse, right? And a bunch of those guys worked for me, so they had gotten money too out of the deal. And we were at an old time steakhouse where they had phones that they could put at the table, right? It was like straight out of the Godfather type thing. Yeah, right. And so they're like, what are you gonna do? I'm like, you know, by that time I had a house, I'm not into cars. I'm like, you know, I wonder if they sell lifetime passes on American Airlines. And so just obliterated, I asked for one of the phones and I was, I mean, I traveled so much, 1-800-433-6464 was the American Airlines. That's how much I remember to this day. So I called them up and I'm like, do you guys sell lifetime passes? You know, and I was probably slurring all my words and they're like, sure, we'll put you to the air pass department. And that's what they did. And so for $125,000, I bought a lifetime pass on American Airlines that I gave to my dad. I used it for a long time and had a blast. Then gave it to my dad. And when he passed, I gave it to somebody who works for me. So it's still in use from the, all That's these years later. <laughs> so after a few years of, of I guess, I, I, I'm sure you weren't idle, but you were not, you were not specifically focused on a next business venture. No, I no, think. no. I was traveling, partying like a rock star. Yeah. Man. All I cared about was having fun. <laughs> Literally, I, I took that American Airlines Air Pass. I went all over the world. Uh, you know, it was amazing. So at a certain point, from the way it's been reported, there's a guy who you were at Indiana University with, I believe, Todd Wagner, and you guys are just talking about how can we watch Indiana basketball games? Pretty much. At California Pizza Kitchen, yep. Uh, <laughs> he's like, we, we would get together and just, you know, swap out ideas because I was retired, right? So I was like... Yes. You know, I'm 30, well, by then 32, 30, no, 33, 34. And um, he's like, I was like the rich retired guy, you know, with all my buddies. 
And so we're just swapping ideas. And this is right when the internet's starting to happen, you know, late 94, early 95. And it's like, look, there's got to be a better way to listen to sports. And so I'm like, I like this idea. And I put up the first 75 grand, um, my own money, and we went from there. And I bought a, a Packard Bell computer, put it in the second bedroom of the house I had at the time, you know, and just taught myself everything that I could. And we started, we went to a local radio station, KLIF, and I'll never forget, I've, I've got um, a VCR and eight hour VCR tapes, and we would connect it to the audio board, right? The mix board that they have, radio stations, take the output of that, input into the VCR, record on VCR tape, then I'd take it to my house, encode it, which, you know, encoding back then was a disaster. And we <laughs> encoded all these different ways. Then I would go online and I would go to all these forums, you know, CompuServe, AOL, Prodigy, Usenet, anywhere that I could reach people. And I would um, say, hey, if you're interested in Dallas sports or Dallas anything, come to this website called AudioNet, download all this stuff because it wasn't easy. You had to go, you know, download the TCPI client, all this stuff you needed to get on the Internet. And I'm like, you know, let me know what you think. Ten people, a hundred people. A thousand people. It was just like, oh my God, we've got something here. All of a sudden the world just shrunk and there was nobody else doing internet broadcasting, which is what we called it at the time. You know, and I then I went to that radio station and said we want to do all day. Then we went to another one, another one. We started creating internet only radio stations. We connected to police scanners so that you can listen to police scanners. And then live <laughs> came along. I mean, and so before we even got to video, we were we were called AudioNet. We were doing, we were streaming 400 plus radio stations, a thousand internet only radio stations. I mean, it was just crazy. Police scanners, anything we could find, business stuff, weddings. I mean, it was crazy. It, it was crazy. And so at that time, did you imagine the possibilities of what was essentially streaming? You, right? I mean, this oh, is, yeah. oh, you yeah. thought one day we will all be in our homes. And- me- uh, yep. No doubt about it, because I remember we had probably 40 people right at that point in time, and I'd funded all of it up to that point. I mean, so mm-hmm. all the money I had from before was was running out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I said, look, you know, if we do this right, we're all going to be rich, filthy, stinking rich. And this company is <laughs> going to be worth billions of dollars because we're going to replace TV, everything. Be, you know, the Internet's going to be multimedia bits, you know, bits or bits. They don't care what they are. We'll we'll. We'll broadcast everything and anything. So we're going to go hard and we're going to go after it. And that's exactly what we did. But yeah, we knew yeah. it was the, it wasn't like, okay, we're doing this just, you know, just to try to get by and, you know, maybe we'll sell it. We really ran it to be profitable and, and ran it because we knew we could change everything. Tell me about that moment in 1998 when you guys go public and on that very first day, as I understand it, you become a, a billionaire for the first time, you know, you become a billionaire, period. What did that mean to you? How did you learn that you had crossed the mark? So uh, two different, just, two different yeah. things there. So we go public in July of 1998, and it's the biggest IPO first day burst in the history of the stock market, right? So when you, when we back then, when you go public, they'd have to make a market and open up the stock. And, you know, we priced at $18, and we would, on the way to the, to NASDAQ, we'd be like, Okay, what are we going to open at, right? And you know, they're like 25, I'm like 30s in the 30s. And in my in my mind, I'm doing the math. If well, we open in the 30s, right? I'm worth 300 some million dollars and I'm like, "Oh my god," right? <laughs> you know, it's just like and and so I had, you know, and then I said to my partner, you know, if we hit and I forget what the price was, um if if we get to this level, I'm worth a billion dollars. And <laughs> He's like, you're an idiot. Just shut the you know what up, right? Just no. And so it doesn't open at 33. It opens up at like 62 and three quarters and goes up to 72 and then comes back down. And it was just, it was crazy. But I I wasn't a billionaire yet, right? And so it took the internet stock market going crazier and crazier. And I, I don't remember the exact date, but I remember the exact moment, right? Where I'm sitting there. And I'm in front of my computer and, you know, the F5 keys refresh. And so I'm like on my.yahoo or whatever, Yahoo Finance, and watching BCST refresh because I'm close, right? And so it's like, you know, 8.30 in the morning and I, I was just sitting there basically naked um, in front of my computer. 
And it hit that mark, and I did my little happy little billionaire naked dance. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was unbelievable. And, and to this day, I still don't believe it. You know, it's just well, crazy. Well, so uh, you've, you've said in some other profiles that have been written about you, I thought it was great, just um, talking about, you know, the idea of wealth and the, and the degrees of wealth. Because somebody, I think, asked you, what is wealthy enough or something? And your answer, I loved, was about the differences, the distinctions between enough versus a lot versus fuck you versus fuck everyone money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, for anyone who wasn't lucky enough to have seen that before now, would you enlighten our listeners about the difference? Of the, oh, between my those God. Things? I mean, it's just like, you know, when you first make it, you can like my first company, right? There's things you didn't never dreamed of that you can do. Right. And then there's things that you can buy that most people can't like a plane. Right. And then there's things that are like, why not? Like a sports team, right? right. And, and then it's like, you know, the next dollar is not going to change my life. And that's the ultimate fuck you, right? It's like, I don't need it for me. I'll try to help other people because another dollar doesn't mean a damn thing to me, but it, can mean, it means a lot to other people. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. You know, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, it's beyond, it's beyond belief. I try not to never take it for granted, but, you know, making another dollar is not going to change my life at all but it can certainly change the lives of a lot of other people. So that, that's where I'm at right now. When, when you start realizing the, the ultimate fuck you money is when you start realizing you don't need any more. Right. What's the thing, and I, we had Bill Gates on this podcast a few months ago, and I asked the same question. What's the one thing you most want that money cannot buy? Another 100 years. Yeah, that's basically what his answer was as well. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned, uh, I guess this would have been step one of the of the fuck you money was January 4th, 2000, becoming the majority owner of the Dallas Mavericks and really turning that team around over the years since then, winning the first championship there in 2011 and all the other success. Was there something about owning an NBA team specifically and and what has been the the greatest, I guess, satisfaction of particularly owning this NBA team? You know, I, like I said, I mean, we went back and we talked about, you know, basketball shoes selling garbage bags, right? So I've always been a basketball junkie. I mean, I still play pickup. I still go out and shoot. And so, you know, I was a Mavs season ticket holder and they sucked. And then, you know, I remember going to the opening night of 99-2000 season and, you know, we're undefeated. It's opening night and there's nobody there. You know, I mean, we've got Sean Bradley and Dirk Nowitzki and Steve Nash and Michael Finley. And I'm thinking, I can do a better job than this. And then I realized, oh, shit, I can put my money where my mouth is. And so talked to Mark. <laughs> somebody connected me to Mark McGuire, former Mavs player, who connected me to the then owner, Ross Bro Jr. And within three weeks, I owned the team. It was crazy. And then I remember sitting on the bus with Don Nelson and Del Harris, two of our coaches, right? And the stock market was still going nuts for internet stocks. And I had sold to Yahoo and, and got internet stock back, their stock back. And the stock went up like a hundred bucks in one day. And I'm like, and they're like, well, what do you think we should do? When, I'm like, I don't know, but let me just tell you this. The money I paid for the mass, I just got it all back because the stock just went up today. <laughs> it, it was just so bizarre, right? It's just it's so surreal. Um, but yeah, and, and so in terms of what's been the best, obviously the highlight was winning a championship and, you know, what makes it different is than any other business is that, you know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon can have the best quarter in the history of quarters, the best year in the history of every company in the United States. And no one ever throws a parade for them. Right. <laughs> when your team wins, the whole city, the whole area is on fire. Right. Everybody's fired up. Everybody's excited. And you just can't help feel but feel all the energy. And that's what makes it so different. You know, and it's your city. You didn't go into another city and yeah, it's, yeah, buy it's home, a team. right? Yeah. It's home. And, and so, yeah, that was super special. Losing, you know, obviously is brutal. And then the other thing kind of, you know, again, being a basketball junkie, you know, when we play a home game, every, every chance I get, I'll go out there and shoot before the game. And so the players are starting, and I'm up there getting jumpers, and this is my own court, right? <laughs> and it's just right, like, right. you know, I'm looking around, and, oh, it's just the best thing ever. And then sometimes I'll stay out there when the fans start to come in. And so, you know, then all the fans recognize it's me, and they all start getting into it, you know. And so when I make a shot, they'll cheer. And when I miss a shot, they'll boo. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just spectacular. 
Well, you've really redefined what it means to be a sports team owner, because in the past, I think people sat up in the skyboxes and were sort of in suits and ties. You've you you're right in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, for better or worse. Right? Yeah, right. I, I didn't care. Right. I'm like, look, why would I change? Why would I try to fit to what right. they do? This has always worked for me. And I bought it to have fun. I wanted to win, but I wanted to enjoy every minute of it. And, you know, other than the losing part, yeah, I think I have. I mean, and now it's great. So, like, you know, when Michael um, Jordan bought the Charlotte team and he's like, well, what kind of owner are you going to be? He goes, I want to be like Mark Cuban. And I'm like, ah. (laughs) So uh, you mentioned, you know, the dot-com bubble had not yet burst when you were at that point. When that happened, what did you make of it? Had you really anticipated that? Did you feel that – Oh, yeah. Um, that's why you had got rid of your stock from Yahoo when you did. Well, I didn't get rid of it. I did something called a, a collar. And so yeah. what I did was said, okay, look, how much money do I need? You know, the, if it goes up another 300%, I don't care. But I'd seen, you know, I traded enough stocks and dealt with technology stocks enough that I knew there was a better chance it was going down. So I did something called a collar where you sell long-term calls and buy puts and effectively did that. And it, it got named one of the top 10 trades in Wall Street history. And so, yes, yeah. yes. And, and so it, it was just trying not to be greedy. You know, how much, how much did I need? And people called me stupid. They're like, oh, you did this caller and the stock kept on going up. I'm like, yeah, I'm sitting in my G5. I feel really stupid, you know. <laughs> was broadcast.com ever worth what Yahoo Oh, it was paid worth for more. It. I mean, we were YouTube before yeah. YouTube. We were Pandora. We were Spotify. Anybody that does streaming right now, you know, was built on the back of what we did way back when. I mean, we there was nobody doing it when we started. And by the time we sold to Yahoo, we were dominating. I mean, we literally just were crushing everybody. And we, I mean, and even in terms of revenues, I think our, our last quarter we did you know, $15 million in, you know, 1999 revenues and lost a million and a half. So we were right there around cash flow break even. But, you know, when, when the market bubble burst, Yahoo just freaked out, you know, I mean, but there, there, there's no, there was no good reason for YouTube to ever exist. I mean, we did user generated content. We used to have, you know, businesses breakfast with Michael Dell, right. Where he'd upload stuff. You know, we, we bought this company SimpleNet for that very reason. Um, we do indexing, all the stuff that we did then that is still being done now. Yahoo blew it. I mean, in no uncertain terms, it was crazy. And but you know, at that point, I was running the Mavs, and it was on them. They don't want me to be on the board. They don't want me to be active in management. I'm like, fine. You know, I, I can yeah. think of a thousand different things I'd like to do. Well, you know, the other thing that our listeners are going to know, you were way ahead of the game on, and and uh, this was discussed on a recent episode of the podcast with with Tom Quinn after Parasite, the movie, won the Best Picture Oscar. We were talking about his path to where he ended up, and it, it came through working with you guys. And we should note, you basically built your own kind of entertainment vertical system over over a few years, including streaming TV network, HDNet, which later became AXS TV, your own film studio, Magnolia, which you still have, your own theater chain landmark until recently was was one of your properties. As a result of having all of these things, you were able to to and daring enough to do day and date back before two, literally anyone. Yeah, back in two thousand six. Yeah, we released yeah. Bubble with Steven Soderbergh. You know, yes. it was crazy because we bought Landmark in two thousand three. We also owned Reicher for a while. And then it was like, okay, we want to get vertically integrated. So we, I created the first all high-def television network anywhere ever in 2001 when we call it, created HDNet and HDNet Movies. And then we created HDNet Films to make smaller movies, 2929 to make bigger movies, and then Magnolia to distribute them, and then Landmark Theaters. And so we, we were completely vertically integrated. And so we could control the whole thing. And the funny thing about it, like in 2004 is when HGNet Films started doing movies. And the very first one, right, I get an email from this guy named Alex Gibney. And he yes. goes, and I didn't know who Alex Gibney was. This was just a random email. Alex Gibney didn't know he was Alex Gibney at that point. <laughs> and, and so he goes, I've got all this footage from Enron, the company Enron. And I'm like, that's cool. And I'm like, is it exclusive? Yes. Do you own the rights? All of them, yes. And he's like, we want to do this documentary. I'm like, what's the budget going to be? And he goes, $770,000. I'm like, okay, let's do it. 
all in 12 <laughs> minutes. 12 minutes, I greenlit Enron, the smartest guys in the room. And so they, you know, Alex does a phenomenal job. I'm, you know, I'm executive producer slash a little bit help with all of it. And then we premiere it day and date. It does great on HGNet. It does great in landmark theaters and some of the independent theaters that would take, would take it. It was one of the top 10 grossing documentaries of all time at that time, not anymore. And it got nominated for an Academy Award for yeah. Best Documentary. I'm thinking, this movie business, this shit's easy. <laughs> easy. And you had, right? a, you had a few of those early on, right? Good night and good luck. Yes, and, and then the next one yeah. Todd brings in with participants. Hey, we're doing this black and white movie about you know the, the news industry in the 50s with George Clooney. And it's $4 million. <laughs> and that's our half. And I'm like, great, why not? You know, <laughs> we can pick these things. Gets nominated for six Academy Awards. George Clooney throws, you know, a, a, an Oscar party, right? And so we're at Dan Tana's and I'm like, and I start talking to this lady, hey, my name's Mark, da 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 I don't rec- what's your name? Madonna, you know? And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I see, you know, people are doing body shots over there. I'm like, who's that they're doing body? Cindy Crawford. I'm like, oh my God, right? This thing, what just it was happened worth to the my investment. life, right? Yeah. We're going to Italy for the film festivals and Toronto and this and that. I'm like, this movie shit is easy. <laughs> and then you haven't heard of a single movie we did after that. A bunch of them got nominated and stuff like that. I mean, we did a lot of good movies, The Road and a bunch of others. But oh, yeah. um yeah, it's just, it went downhill from that, from there financially. <laughs> All right, so this brings us to the reality TV chapter of your life, which yeah. actually people may not quite remember necessarily that before Shark Tank, actually years and years before Shark Tank, was something that came, I believe, a year after The Apprentice called The Benefactor. The Benefactor, and, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so tell us, what was the lure, what was the allure to you of even doing that show, which which was short-lived, but maybe perhaps wet your appetite about No, it was would... fun. Look, they yeah. came, somebody came to me, um, Clay Newbel, who now is a producer for Shark Tank, right, or executive producer for Shark Tank, came to me and, oh, I forget the name of the production company, and they're like, look, we, we think we can do this show on broadcast television on ABC called The Benefactor. And what it's going to be is you're going to pick 12 people to live in a house, and you're going to teach them life's business lessons and give them challenges, and the winner walks away with a million dollars. I'm like, sounds fun, right? Whatever. And it wasn't meant originally to be a knockoff of The Apprentice, even though people kind of positioned it that way. And then- Including Donald Trump, in, right? Including he was Donald angry. Trump, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> because then they wanted me to try to leverage The Apprentice, wanted me to give shit to Trump back and forth, right? Which I was happy yeah. to do, just so happy to do. You knew him already no, at didn't. that point? I didn't, no. I did not. And so not at that time. So we did the show, and then right where we were doing it, the guy who greenlit the show at ABC left ABC. And the guy who took his place, or the woman who took his place, I don't remember, didn't like the show. And so literally, we hadn't even finished production yet. And so we had to go back in and recut things. And like even the intro, right? The intro was done after the fact. And so it was just, it was a mess. And, you know, just so many different things. But... You know, it was what it was, and, and I had fun with it. I didn't think it was bad, but we, we didn't get the full run. Um, they cut it down to six episodes, and by, you know, October of 2004, it was DOA. And so the, the Donald Trump connection, though, and so when I got it, he called me up and said, hey, congrats. I was like, that's cool, you know, and then I started ripping on him some, and so I'll never forget. ABC had me on, you know, PR tour and all that kind of stuff, and they're like, how's your wealth compared to Donald Trump's? And I'm like... I could write a bigger check than him and not even know it was missing, right? <laughs> and that got to him. And so one of his lawyers called me up and said, you have to retract that or we're going to sue you. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Sue me. Let's put out balance sheets, right? <laughs> you know, so literally I'm, I'm telling this, the lawyer, just put out the balance sheets. I don't care. You know, we'll have an auditor. We'll put them all out there. I don't care. Let's do it. And you know what? I'll just give you a bank statement and you decide and you give me your bank statement and, and we'll see who has more. And, you know, it was the ultimate put it on the table moment. And then from there, then when we got canceled, he sent me a letter that I have framed right over there, um, <laughs> you know, telling me, yeah, you're a failure, this and that. So, And it seems like, yeah, ever since then, there's been a almost like a, from his point of view, I can't characterize your your feelings, but I mean, it's it's a fascination slash hate 
type thing where he'll, he'll give you a hard time, but he also, you know, as we'll come to towards the end here, you know, you, I think he wants your counsel on stuff like coronavirus. Yeah, I so mean, it's look, very- Don, Donald's in it for himself, right? You know, and, and to, to his credit, right, he'll put things being, you know, he, he'll definitely hold a grudge for a long time until he needs you for something. Right. <laughs> then the grudge <laughs> is gone. And so, look, it, it, he is who he is, and, and that's fine. Um, and I actually don't dislike him. I mean, I yeah. like spending time with him. He's entertaining. And, and then, you know, we did MMA promotions, and he wanted some help on Access Television. He went, back then it was HDNet, and so we were doing a lot of MMA at the time on Friday nights. And so he had a promotion he was working in, and they invited me to be part of it. And one of his kids emailed me, you don't have a problem with my dad. I'm like, I don't give a shit, right? And yeah, so, yeah. so we did this thing, and then I still have the video. While we were doing the, um, the press conference, he goes, we brought in Mark Cuban because everything he touches turns to gold. And so <laughs> that's just Donald, right? Right. It's what, you know, no memory. It's like a memory of a fish, right? <laughs> you know? Well, so, uh, okay. So eight years after The Benefactor, you come back to reality TV, first as a guest shark, and then ever after that, the yep, I think after season two as a regular. Would you ever have imagined when you got involved with this thing that almost a decade later, we're talking about multiple Emmys, you know, basically one of the hottest shows still on TV. People can't get enough of it. Yeah, it's crazy. I'll tell you exactly what my thought process was. First of all, they brought me in for an audition and they were asking me all these questions and everything on tape and I'm just ripping on them, ripping on them, ripping on them. And they're like, okay, you know, and I didn't hear back from them for a while. And then they decided to bring me in as a guest shark. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, because I'd watched it and um, I'm like, oh, my God, this business show. And they, it would have been bouncing around one night. It's on Tuesday nights and Thursdays then Sundays or whatever. I'm thinking this thing has got no future. But again, here's my chance on being on ABC. I'm going to go on there and I'm just going to tear it apart. Right. I'm going to go big. <laughs> and so I do my three episodes and lo and behold, they get brought back and they bring me back in to be full time. And I'm thinking, OK, well, let's see what happens. And then the rest is history. Boom. And for you, it's you obviously don't need the money. You don't need additional businesses. What's the draw for you? Because it sends the message to everybody, particularly families and kids, that the American dream is alive and well. That's it, 100% of it. I can't tell you how many times, almost on a daily basis, now via email, where um, people tell me, yeah, we watched Shark Tank, and that motivated me or my kids or whoever to, to, to do this, to start that. And now, unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately, you know, I hear, oh, yeah, I've been watching you since I was a little kid, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, my Lord. I used to be the young and, guy in everything I did. Now I'm the old guy. And uh, we should, of course, note, I think it's now up to something like 150 small businesses that you've backed. Many of them have really panned out tremendously well. Is there – I know you've gotten this one before, but is there one or – are there one or two that you're proudest of sniffing out early on the potential of? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've had a lot of them do really well. I had one cycloramic that sold for 20 some million dollars, which covered everything that I invested in the other the all the way through. Yeah, I mean, look, they, it's not my typical type of investment. Like if I'm just investing normally, a lot of them wouldn't be the deals that I would do. But at the same time, again, they send the right message and I get to help these entrepreneurs that have put their whole lives into these businesses. And, you know, there's there's some that are really have an opportunity to change the game. You know, there's this kid, little mini me, Benjamin Stern out of Florida, who created a company called NoboDrops.com. And what they do is he's big into conservation and ecology. And rather than having like for shampoo, we always have in the plastic bottles. There's just these little drops that you get and you put the drops in your hand and you put them under the shower nozzle. The water, you know, frees them up. And you put them in your hair and you wash your hair and there's no plastic, no nothing, and it's zero waste. And just businesses like that that I get to be part of. Unreal Deli, which is, you know, plant-based corned beef. You know, there's just so many of them that, um, well, go to markcuban.com if you want to see all of yes, them. Yes, Because I'll yes. leave somebody <laughs> off, right? I'll either be here for two hours or, you know, go to markcuban.com. But I'm proud of all of them. And that's not to say I, I didn't pick some stinkers. I got some real stinkers. I'll, I'll tell you one <laughs> quick story, right? Yeah. How crazy it can be. So early on, one of my you know, first to second year, there's a business and they're, they're selling chocolate-covered pretzels. And I'm thinking, this is good. These pretzels are good. And they sell them to Neiman Marcus, which is based in Dallas. So I'm figuring I can help them there. 
And, you know, as you might expect, when the show airs on Friday nights on ABC, they get a big pop in sales. And so beforehand, I talked to the, the entrepreneur and I'm like, okay, you know, you're selling them for $29.95 plus shipping, right? It costs you 15 bucks to make them. We'll make about 15 bucks a pop, maybe even a little bit on shipping and we'll be great. Great. Let's go. And so we're tracking it, you know, a couple days later, the next week, and her bank account is going down like this. And we're like, what happened? She goes, well, I decided to give away free shipping. I'm like, how much is your shipping? $15. I'm like, wait, so 100% of your profit you gave away? Yeah, but we'll make it. No. (laughs) You know? Oh, my God. Yeah, they're not doing so well. (laughs) But just, you know, so out of the, you know, 100 plus probably... 25% 25% are, oh my goodness, these, this is a great company. 25% turned out to be idiots. And the other 50% are grinding along and doing okay. Is there anything from your experience with those companies and from across a, a lifetime that we've been talking about of, of being in business that, you know, do you find that successful business people, entrepreneurs, what do they share in common that is the, the everyone's, chip there? Everyone's different, right? You've got to look at the, you know, each person individually, different perspectives. But I'd say if there's one thing where there is a lot of success, they were broke at some point. You know, their back was against the wall. Damon calls it the power of broke. And, you know, their backs being against the wall, they realized that if they didn't get it done, that, you know, they were going back to nothing. And I think that's been a commonality that's really paid off for my entrepreneurs. So we started talking about coronavirus, and I hope we can finish by talking about it just because you're, you're in, I, I think, the most interesting person who's not currently in the government you know, the, to, to have a perspective on this because you have a foot in business, sports, everything that's, that's affected right now. And so can we sort of just do a rapid fire? Your, yeah, yeah, whatever you okay. want. When did it first sink in for you that something was wrong with really wrong with this coronavirus? When, you know, March 11th, 2020, you know, third quarter of our Mavericks game against the Denver Nuggets, when I get the notice that the season had been suspended. Here we are playing the last game of the NBA season. And I mean, it doesn't get any more real than that. And I mean, everybody saw the video of me being stunned. I'm going to be a meme for the rest of my life, you know? (laughs) Not enough chocolate Um, in your hot chocolate? Show my video. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you did something that I think a lot of people really admire and appreciated where you you basically said you're going to take care of your employees at the stadium, at the arena until further notice, basically. When did it, I guess, sink in that this that this was going to really affect people in a major, potentially life-changing way? Beyond, I know you're, we knew in it, that it was a problem, but the idea that that it could really hurt people's lives. Well, earlier that day, you know, we were uncertain whether or not we'd play the game um, and what would happen. And I remember just thinking to myself, okay, you know, what happens if we don't play? What happens if we stop? And I didn't think that would happen, but it's just, you know, you plan for the worst and hope for the best. And, you know, I just read, I was reading, 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 and it just hit me that, you know, there's a lot of people that could really get hurt. And so just then, you know, I was doing that interview with ESPN and just came to mind, you know, that, you know, this is something that we had already been discussing. I had, uh, you know, I told people in at, at the Mavericks and at the, um, the arena that already that we need to take this into account if business stops. Because like I said earlier, it's not going to change my life, but it's going to, you know, really change their lives. And so, you know, it was just the right thing to do. And so, you know, it just happened to come to mind when I was doing that interview. As the Trump administration's response to this began to unfold, I'm wondering what was what was your impression of that? And then also when apparently there was some outreach from them to to come in and and be helpful. I mean, I actually heard that there are people on this advisory council who didn't know they were on the advisory council. Well, they told until me, they he asked me, so I knew I was going to be on. <laughs> you know, it's really easy to throw stones um, at people and the decisions they make. And anybody who's ever been a decision maker knows you're never going to get them all right. You know, and in particular now with the, with the virus, you know, we, we don't even know everything about it yet. I mean, literally, um, you know, we're dealing with completely imperfect information. And so I'm not going to I'm not going to throw him under the bus and fuck with him for what he's done in the past. Right. But in terms of going forward with the Economic Council, we'll see. Right. The, the first Phone call meeting was really simple introduction, first thoughts, right? But what matters now is what happens going forward, 
because hopefully we'll have some medications, some therapies, hopefully eventually a vaccine, some prophylactics that keep people from getting it. But, you know, now's the time that things really need to start getting organized and focused. And it, it's not just a week ago, right? It's been more than a month. And we saw, we've seen what's happened with the, the stimulus programs where the intention was great and I was super excited about it, but timing was everything because the whole goal of these stimulus programs were, was to keep people employed. And in order to do that, you had to get money to small businesses quickly and, and big businesses quickly for that matter. And it hasn't happened on a timely basis. And there's been other issues as well. And so here we are, right? Here we are and almost towards the end of April and we're not adapting, right? In my opinion, in order for us, whether as individuals, as a community, as CEOs, as entrepreneurs, or in government, not only do we have to be resilient, we have to be agile. And so we're not really, we're seeing attempts at agility, but we're not really seeing any real agility from our government. Now, the obvious response to that is, can you ever expect agility from the government? But, you know, this is so significant, so dangerous, so, you know, so disruptive, right? Um, and so much, we've never had this much at stake since maybe, I don't know, the world wars and the civil wars. I'm hopeful that the federal government will get it right, but I'm, I'm starting to lose a little bit of that hope, unfortunately, because we're just, you know, two weeks ago, I was so excited about PPP and everything. I was so excited about the stimulus program, and I was even willing to buy them time, right? Because it was, you know, it's like healthcare.gov with the um, Obamacare, right? It screwed up at the beginning, but it ended up being okay. And yes, people's lives were at stake and people's lives were lost because of screw-ups. But here we are having learned from that, hopefully, and what are we doing today? And, you know, the PPP program should have been renewed already, right? We should have made the adjustments to learn from our mistakes. I've said, you know, make it a lottery. There's 30 million small businesses in this country. You know, 22 million of them have, you know, more than one employee. And we loan to 1.6. If out of those 30 million, 20 million are negatively impacted, it's probably a lot higher, right? You're never going to get it right, you know, by just letting it go through banks. And banks are still going to be banks and try to protect themselves, right? And so there had, to, there should have been ways that accommodated that. Now that we're doing it a second time, I think we need to do a lottery where the banks, rather than letting the banks make the choices, everybody gets the same equal chance. And you've also said, uh, I, I know, you know, talking about framing it as America 2.0, just how we recover from this, that there has to be, we should be rewarding companies that offer equity to their employees. Yes, absolutely. We should, you know, and um, and I think also at the, 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 the bottom line is that we're not getting out of this until there's adequate testing, which doesn't well, seem even, to be- Well, even that uh, testing is going to be tough, right? Wearing masks is going to be tough, right? Do you force everybody to get tested? What do you do to somebody who doesn't, decides they don't want to be tested, right? It's just like we did with- um, measles vaccines. Like you almost had to shame them and you had to get people to give certificates, you know? And despite that, we saw increases in measles until schools and other organizations stepped in. You know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with masks? Are masks really beneficial? We don't even know. So, you know, someone walks into, now we're starting to get businesses open. Someone walks into your business and they have allergies and maybe they have the corona, maybe they don't, but let's just say one of them does. And they just sneeze big time into their mask. They're not going to keep it on. We don't, we haven't taken you know put in place any of the steps, any of the precautions. You know they walk into the bathroom to wash their hands. They hit the sink, touch this part of the sink. They touch that part of the door, right? All these things that we're trying to prevent against. It's not that we can't deal with those things, but there needs to be a task force and somebody who's ultimately in charge. Because I think if there's one failing that I've seen from the administration beyond just the things we just talked about, it's that it's not that there's nobody in charge, it's that everybody's in charge, right? That's everybody's right. Yeah. trying to hit home runs. Everybody's trying to hit the game-winning shot. And when everybody's in charge, nobody's in charge, and people step on each other, and you get confusion. And I think that's a lot of what's happened right now. And so someone needs, I mean, Vice President Pence is trying to do a lot in terms of communicating to people with the task force, but someone, there needs to be a let's get back to work task force where somebody thinks through all the different ramifications. You know, do you need hazmat receptacles, you know, in every single retail outlet, every single restaurant, 
You know, do we need to start dealing with ambient voice, the Alexa home type thing where, you know, door open, right? Turn on the water so you don't have to touch things, you know, in an elevator, whatever, right? Do you put plastic coating over escalator handles? You know, there's, there's little things that somebody needs to start working on to think these things through. Now, a lot of great businesses are going to be started trying to solve these things. And, you know, I'm trying to work with my Shark Tank folks to do a lot of those things. But the reality is we need somebody in charge of setting the standards for how we get business back open. And not just because of the risk of resurgence, but because the risk to all the individual people going through all the individual businesses and the people that work there. Until you know what to do, you can't expect, you know, the little tchotchke store down the street or the, you know, the souvenir store on Broadway in New York to know exactly what to do. Last question for you. I so appreciate all of your time and insights here. Last question. There are people who have been arguing recently, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, that there should not be billionaires at all, that they're somehow they should go away. I know that from what I gather, you're a big admirer of Ayn Rand and and maybe a, a libertarian would be more the, how you would classify yourself. Is there a political drive in you to to rebut any of those things to advance things do you do you have i mean there's been these rumors for years that you might take the the same path that trump did going from except you're a lot wealthier and uh you know and now at a, a better reality show but to go from business person to reality tv to the to a presidential campaign is that actually a, a real thing it's something i discussed with my family and they voted it down yeah <laughs> otherwise i would have run um Really? But, yeah. This real. this this cycle you would have run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Wh- which party? Uh, I would have been an independent for sure yeah. because I hate both parties. And the only way to really to do it right is to take pl- politics out of it and to say, you know what, let's just get the best candidates. Let's get the best people for the job. There's there's you know, there's nothing about the Democrats or Republicans that say that's where the best talent's going to be. And the idea that you try to on the Supreme Court in, in judgeships, you know, in positions throughout government that these are political appointees is just wrong, wrong on its face, right? And we've seen where partisanship has gotten us. So that's why I would have done it independently. But, you know, as I won't say a student, but a fan of Ayn Rand doesn't mean I follow everything that she does. Let's call me a, a reform libertarian because I'm not a fan of trickle down economics. I'm a fan of trickle up economics. I'm a big believer that, you know, Business gets better for everybody when you lift up the bottom. And so, you know, where I disagree with Bernie uh, in a lot of things is that he doesn't understand the business nuances of what happens to individual businesses, what happens to entrepreneurship. And yeah, people are like me are going to get lucky, you know, and we're going to rise to the top. Somebody's got to have the most amount of money. And whether it's a billion or a million or whatever it may be, whoever's at the bottom isn't going to be happy with the people at the top, period, end of story. But at the same time, we can be compassionate as capitalists, right? We can do things. I'm all for a $15 minimum wage, as long as it's federal. I don't like it when it's localized because then you get the inconsistencies of go down the street and it's cheaper, right? Or go up the street and you can make more money. And so that creates the problem. But it, when everybody plays by the same rules throughout the entire country, then it starts to work, right? It's no different than a commodity. If the price of copper goes up and you need copper in what, you know, whatever it is you make, Everybody's playing by the same rules. And so, you know, there's some there's some concepts that Bernie's had and AOC has had. I'm obviously for conservation and saving the planet. But there are ways to do it, recognizing that you can be business friendly and still be employee friendly. Like we talked a little bit earlier about getting equity for employees. You're always going to live paycheck to paycheck, particularly, A, if you're working, if you're getting paid by the hour. doesn't matter how much you're getting paid by the hour. You're always going to live paycheck to paycheck if you don't have appreciable assets. Now, if you're able to save some and invest in stocks or a home, that's great. But without appreciable assets, I mean, how else are you, you going to get any comfort that you can survive, right? You're always going to be worried about your, your next check. And I've been there. I know that feeling. And, and so, you know, solving that problem and making trickle up would definitely has to be a focus now. And now while we're going through this reset into America 2.0, now's the time to do it. And if we're not compassionate as capitalists, someone's going to do it for us because we saw all the polls we saw, there's a reason why Bernie has a movement. There's a reason why AOC has a national platform, right? It's, if only because people are concerned that things aren't working. They don't know how they're going to survive. And we, have, we can solve those problems, but we haven't. 
And, you know, you look at what's happening now with the Federal Reserve, you know, when, when the Feds reduce interest rates and they prop up financial instruments, that's UBI for rich people. You know, that's the ultimate put so that folks like me have to be really stupid to lose that money in those circumstances, right? Now, obviously, a lot of people have gotten crushed, you know, in the markets and seen the value of their assets decline significantly, but that was all before all this Fed, Fed support. But, you know, you don't see the Fed coming in and saying, you know what, we're going to buy assets in disadvantaged communities, you know, so that everything gets propped up there. We're going to buy, you know, we're going to buy everybody homes and pay their mortgages as long as you keep them clean and livable. And, you know, just like, you know, for the PPP loan, it was 75% to payroll. Well, you know, we're not going to, no one's saying we're going to buy homes for everybody or apartments or condos. And it's rent free as long as you keep them up to par, right? That's how people retain wealth. And that's not happening at the bottom. So someone needs to focus on those, but it doesn't work in the way Bernie looked at it simply because he didn't look at it from the business side of it. He didn't say how our business is going to operate to get that money and get that wealth. It was always tax, 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 tax. And the least efficient way to get money to people who need it most is pushing it through the government. Well, I can't thank you enough for this. It's it's so fascinating, your whole life story and your take. And, and I just really appreciate the time. It was so fun. Thank Thanks. You. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Well, you got a, a, a unique life. So it's, thank it's you again. Fun, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.